This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach those subjects. My first guest for today's show, joining me via Zoom, is Lindsay Stewart. Lindsay is the co-founder and CEO at Stringer, a startup that operates video news, a video news marketplace that connects media companies with a network of over 100,000 freelance videographers. Lindsay, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. All right, so first things first, let's point our listeners to your, to your website. You've got a, a unique name in that its spelling is unique, but it's uh, stringer.com, and that is S-T-R-I-N-G-R, so stringer without the E, S-T-R-I-N-G-R.com, stringer.com. Let's start, just give us the elevator pitch. What does Stringer do? Well, so Stringer is what we like to fondly call these days the fastest video production platform in the world. Um, and what is powered by is what well, one of our fastballs uh, is our very first product that we launched uh, a number of years back now, uh, which is this ability to source custom video quite quickly. So like you mentioned, we have 100,000 videographers, more than that these days on our platform, who field real-time requests from our direct customers, which are you know, both uh, major media customers companies and increasingly brands and agencies that are looking to tell their story through video. We also have a number of other features now on the platform which allow for every step of the production process from sourcing that custom video to edit to captioning uh, to uh, producing even live uh, feeds of, uh, of, of events. So, uh, you know, it really does a lot in terms of video and it does it quite efficiently. Who's your primary customer? So our primary customers these days are major media companies. So think the Associated Presses, the Reuters of the world uh, that come in and ask us for video uh, that they're looking for. And then uh, we bring it back to them, whether it's live or taped. Uh, you know, we've seen an uptick in usage over the course of the last few months as increasingly those direct media customers are looking for alternate means to uh, covering a location without necessarily sending their own staff. Uh, so that's our primary customer these days because that's where we started. Um, but we have also launched another companion brand called Embed Studios, which is largely speaking, we call it the kind of glossier side of Stringer. Um, and it's largely speaking to brands and agencies who increasingly are also telling uh, their narrative, their story, and their message with video as well. So <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's start with the with the first customer and 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 maybe you mentioned it's where you started. Why don't you take us back to the beginning? Tell us where Stringer came from and how you got into it. Yeah, so um, I used to be a TV news producer. Uh, I worked for some cable networks and some networks. My last stop on that train was uh, with ABC News in their Los Angeles bureau. And the idea for Stringer came out of this basic need that I had. I would walk into a newsroom, I get assigned a story, and I would need more video than was what was available to me. And I wished that there had was a way to basically ask a larger group of people for video, uh, whether it's you know nearby to me or very 
very far away. And I also wish there had been a technological platform to facilitate that request. So you fast forward to today and we have that capability built into the Stringer platform, which is exactly that, that ability to allow any producer of video to come in, ask for the video they want, whether it be breaking news or an interview with a Fortune 500 CEO, we can handle that full spectrum of quality. And so it really came down to kind of what I wanted and executing on that. I also happened to be going to, uh, you know, the Wharton Executives Program and uh, met my co-founder and now husband, Brian McNeil. And he had an entirely different background, a product development background and consulting background. And so it was because of him and a good number of other classmates and even professors that we were able to get Stringer off the ground in those early days. There's nothing really like, uh, you know, having an idea and then being surrounded by, uh, you know, do domain experts in a number of fields. Yeah, so I guess I should have got my disclosures out of the way at, at the beginning. Um, I, it's funny because I think of you as my student, but you technically never took my class. You just kind of snuck in after class to, to get private tutoring. Uh, I totally crashed Brian, your class. <laughs> yeah, but Brian, Brian did take, take my class. Um, and I'm also an investor, and so I have, I'm highly conflicted, but as they say, no conflict, no interest. So I'm really, I really hope that uh, you guys do, 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 do super well. Uh, I wonder if you can go back. So, so what year was it when you got started? Yeah, it was 2014 when we officially incorporated. Um, and then we were still within the Wharton program at the time. And so we took those like, first uh, you know, few months, six months or so to see if we could get an MVP off the ground and raise mm -hmm. initial capital uh, just to uh, you know, get our pilot, our test product out into the wild, so to speak, and, and in front of customers. And then, of course, get feedback. Yeah. So it it doesn't seem like six years, but it's been six years. So so the over that six year period, how significantly has has the ecosystem changed? That is, I guess, how how significantly has your customers' way of doing business changed? I think it has profoundly changed, not so much in the broadcast world, because the broadcast world already knew video and has mm -hmm. you know, video flows. Um, but what I would say is, is that the world has changed in that everybody expects video in association with any narrative. And so if you were to rewind back in time when we were sitting in you know, San Francisco and talking to traditional VCs about what we were aiming to achieve, um, the vision for video and the growth opportunity for video uh, wasn't quite there yet. We were a little early and, and folks said, well, you know, if we have Twitter, uh, why do we need any other source of video or really any other source of media? We, we heard that a lot in the Valley. Um, now when we go out into the world, people really understand the importance of video. And I'd say that's one of the like largest trends. And it's not so mm -hmm. much the people who are using video and who are direct customers, but it's more the investment community and the community at large that sees that importance. Yeah, so I, I agree with you in the sense that video, it, it's, it's all, I'm always surprised because I don't particularly like video as, as a way of consuming information, but it is striking to me just how dominant video is as in, um, for most people in terms of the preference for, for getting information. Yeah, it's almost uh, like a proof point, I think, now people yeah. expect to see, not just read. Yeah, well, but just to drill down on that one, one level, though, how... 
your your primary customer, at least as you described it, is really an intermediary in some ways, in, uh, a Reuters or an, or an AP. So describe to us the entire supply chain and how does it end up, how are people at, at, in the end consuming the video, uh, uh, watching the video, and what happens to it between when you capture it and when we see it? Well, let's start with the viewer or the reader or, or whatever yeah. you want to call them in the first place. Um, people are consuming video in a number of places. It can be traditional t television. It can be OTT channels. Uh, it can be on their phones. It can be on their computers. Uh, you know, people are consuming media everywhere. And I think, you know, largely it just has to do with kind of what devices you have at your fingertips mm -hmm. and how big a screen you want to watch it on. Um, if we were to go to the beginning, um, there are a number of different sources for video. So if you think about the traditional media company, talk like let's talk about your local TV station. They have their traditional crews, their staff photographers, who um, they deploy to various places every single day. But no matter how many people they have on staff, they still cannot reach everything that they want to reach um, because there's only so many places any one particular photographer can get to in a particular moment. Um, so if you put Stringer into that initial context of sourcing video, what we're able to do is take our population of contributors, those 100 plus uh, videographers, 100,000 plus videographers, and have them go to the places where those traditional crews cannot get, whether it be because of geography constraints, time constraints, or pure personnel constraints. Um, within that same example, then, that video comes into our platform, which is a cloud-based platform, and then you can, uh, our customers can see, so a producer, assignment editor, a brand manager can see the video as it comes in. And then they have that opportunity to review it and post it or edit it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and in some cases with live video, live video is what it is. So if you are covering, for instance, a Black Lives Matter rally or protest, you are just taking basically what we're providing to you and posting it on social media, on your OTG channel, or redistributing it to a partner. Um, with taped video, it's a little different. You're usually taking it and you're assembling or editing a story. Um, and then that edit takes place. That edit can take place in a platform like ours or that edit can take place in a different workflow. And it's at that point it is published or broadcast and put onto those, uh, put to those places where, you know, most viewers or readers see it. Yeah. And then I, I think one, one piece we need to fill in is what happens on the supply side. So your 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 customer posts a request for some video. They want some footage. <laughs> Excuse me. They want some footage of a of a of a demonstration in downtown Baltimore. They post that request, and then how? Who's actually providing it? Who's fulfilling the request? Yeah, so that's, it's either either one or many videographers that have mm -hmm. signed up for our app. Um, and it really depends on the request these days. Um, we have uh, kind of tiers of videographers now according to their skill set and what they've demonstrated to us in the past. So if it is a live request, for instance, we take our most highly rated videographers within our platform and we give them those assignments. And it's usually only one videographer who's going out in Baltimore and shooting that live video such 
such that you know CNN can take it. Um, if it's a crowd request, which is kind of where most of our videographers start when they sign up for our app, because we don't know them and they don't know us, um, then a number of videographers will see that request within our app. They can choose to accept it, they can choose to go and shoot it, and then they upload it um, using our app to our platform. At which mm -hmm. point our curation team, who's monitoring that platform, our platform at all times, takes a look at their video, rates their video, and then report um, and then promotes it to our customer. So we kind of have this gradation of or or almost a journey that some of our videographers can go on where they start with crowd and they eventually land up in what we call our pro category. Mm -hmm. and, and then they are given these more um, uh, you know plush assignments. But they are doing it to some extent, even in the pro category, they're recording on spec in a certain as to a certain respect. Yeah, what, right? what we have found um, is with the crowd, they are very certainly doing it on spec. Um, mm -hmm. As they move into the pro category, they do actually have the opportunity now these days, which has actually changed in our model a little bit for guaranteed payment. Yeah. But that's only after they have demonstrated that, you know, they are kind of good actors within our system. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to uh, actually, let me remind our listeners, if, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Lindsay Stewart, who's the co-founder and CEO of Stringer. Uh, Lindsay, I want to now look at, at some at a little bit of the history of the company and what some of the significant milestones have been. So let, let's take uh, two epochs. The first would be 2015-ish, 2014-2015 to, to uh, January, February 2020. Okay, so that five-year period. And then, we'll, and then we'll take on the, the, COVID, the COVID era. But uh, <laughs> let's, let's do the, 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 the five-year precursor, the four or five-year precursor uh, quickly. So tell us a little bit about what the arc of history was for Stringer over those first four or five years. Yeah, so the first years, uh, you know, you start with an idea and then you go to, you know, really getting custom customer feedback. And what, what I would say with our initial feedback um, is there's nothing like trying to get a customer to pay for something. Um, because when you first go to what you think your target customer will be, and especially because I had a good number of, um, you know, connections in that field, you know, there's a lot of people who pat you on the back and say, hey, that's a great idea. And then you build your MVP and you put it in their hands and you put it in their employees' hands and it works so-so. And that's when you start getting some good feedback with, you know, this really doesn't work and that, you know, you know, even sucks. Um, <laughs> and you start really learning. Then the next stage um, from kind of our entrepreneurial journey is getting folks to pay for it, which is even harder. Again, those back patterns that you had, you know, maybe six months or a year uh, previously, they're like, well, that was a good idea, but I don't know if I actually want to give you money. Um, and so I, I think that's another kind of key milestone is getting your kind of first customers that are paying you. Then you kind of fast forward into this wonderful world. Once you start getting those kind of quote unquote blue chip style customers, you're able to leverage them into those conversations into other customers who are potentially mm -hmm. their competitors into using your product. And then you kind of fast forward into where we are now, at least with that initial market where you're growing accounts. And so this largely sounds like a big sales story um, because, because it is, you know, you really with a new and disruptive product have to prove not only is it, is it you know, making you know something revolutionary or different but that that 
there are, there's indeed a market for it. And then with us, I would say one of the key milestones that we've hit more recently is proving that this market is much larger than the news market. Um, you know, we got a lot of criticism and quite honestly still do for going after the news market first. And we said all along that the application for gathering video, um, you know, quickly, easily, more cost effectively would really apply to other places. And so in recent years, kind of in the sales arc of our story, we have been able to show that we can serve real estate firms like Zillow or Corcoran um, or other applications within the Reuters organization that have nothing to do with news whatsoever. Um, so I think that's really where, you know, in terms of if our, our sales arc, our story there, that those are the kind of key milestones. Um, you know, on the other side of things is the product milestones. And so, you know, in early days, we had this idea for sourcing raw video, that, vid you know, video that needs to be cut or, you know, refined in some way um, to be that end finished product. And now what you see us, um, you know, up until this point doing is creating a web-based platform where all video production can get done. And so we largely did that to make the platform sticky. We wanted a good number of reasons for our our, our current and future customers to come to our platform and stay. What's been interesting and perhaps, you know, will guide us to the next kind of point you made is we went from kind of sticky to necessary because now that the workforces are more distributed, cloud-based platforms that get a certain workflow done end to end are becoming even more valuable. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and jump to that. So in, in you know, circa March, at least in the United States, the world got up, upended. So I guess the first question is, when, when did you have a really good sense that the world was going to change uh, for you? And then what did you do? How did you respond to it? Yeah, um, you know, I think we got the sense that the world was going to change somewhere in February, right? Um, the, the fear of a pandemic was looming, and it was pretty clear to everybody that it wasn't going to kind of stay in Asia alone. Um, we didn't really know what to expect, and I don't think anyone, I don't know, save, you know, healthcare professionals or, or that sort, really knew um, how long this would last. I think what, um, what we've what really kind of rang the bell for us is when uh, one of our customers, CNN, really started to leverage our live technology more. You know, CNN has a broad reach globally. They have a huge staff. They have a lot of resources. And we started to just see, you know, multiple live requests for coverage a day. And we started to hear, you know, we can't get to these places readily because, you know, flights aren't taking us there or, mm. you know, we're pulling back on sending our staff around for their own safety. And that's when the bell kind of like rang in terms of our kind of core product, whether it be, you know, custom video live or taped, that we were going to, you know, be become more of a necessity than a helper. Um, and then about a month and a half later, we started hearing from some of our partners and even some of our non-partners in the in the kind of major media world, that they were trying to figure out their workflow. They had producers who were going to do shows from garages. They had reporters who needed tools in their hands such that they could gather video remotely without that, the aid of a, you know, a live view backpack or a satellite truck. Um, and so, you know, one of the, one of the remarks we got from a media executive is, 
well, you, we thought you were going to be necessary, but now you're really necessary and sooner than we thought. And, and what we had thought was a gradual building of various features to make our platform you know, more sticky and more useful and serve a lot of needs became a real workflow um, solution. And so that's what we're currently working on now with some of our partners, where they're not just looking at us for one feature or another, but you know, looking at us for the full, the full flow of what we do. Um, but you know, I think it took us all a couple of months to realize how long this was going to last. Yeah. So I, I guess a, a question, you know, let's go back to, to March. CNN starts to make these requests. You start to imagine a scenario in which you can be more useful to your customers. Um, what, did that come on you suddenly enough and strongly enough that you said, on balance, this is going to be okay for us? Like, we're going to do better? Uh, or were you quite panicked uh, like the rest of us? Um, you know, it's interesting when you've built a company, um, almost nothing panics you anymore. I don't know what. I always like laugh that you could stick a needle through me these days and I wouldn't feel it. <laughs> um, and that's both a good and a bad thing. I think what we looked at was just the numbers. You know, are our current customers still using us? Um, and they were using us either at a level point or more than they had in the past. Mm -hmm. So that was one kind of plus for us in an otherwise very disconcerting world for most people. You know, I think if you have a consumer-based company where those are your customers, right? You are really, you, you freak out because all of a sudden the, your consumers can't go outside and buy. <laughs> um, and they might not have the room to buy whatever you're selling in their, you know, small apartment if they live like I do. Um, but for us, our customers were like, oh, we're locked down and you have people everywhere to get us the video that we need. So we, we didn't really panic. And and then what we also said is like, you know, listen, it's not going to be easy in terms of launching new verticals and markets, which was part of our operating plan. But let's get as many executive conversations as we can now, because those folks are, you know, largely sitting at home and, you know, mm -hmm. want to talk to people. Um, so I think we took advantage of it. But what I would say is, is we... We somehow lucked out from a product perspective and you know you know Brian um, who founded the company with me and he and I have a lot of kind of uh, dissonance and, and struggle over which products to build sometimes and I always say until a customer says it three times I don't want it um, but he had largely just started building things that I thought might have been a little superfluous <laughs> but it turned out to be the best bet ever because now we have all these really cool tools within our platform that are all available you know via the cloud, uh, which means you can sit in your boxer shorts in your garage and produce a show, uh, largely using a lot of our capabilities. Yeah, so let's, we, we just have about five minutes left, but, but I want to turn to the question of tech. We have conveniently glossed over uh, getting that stuff built and some of the lessons, lessons learned. So, so maybe walk us through what you've learned about, about building tech uh, and, and also just talk a little bit about the tech, how significant it is to your business and what you've learned about building it. Yeah, and in full disclosure, I am not the key builder here, but I will describe it as best as I possibly can. Sure. What I've learned about tech is for the most part, you don't want to build to one customer, right? You want to serve a greater need. Um, from our part, we you know, decided that we didn't want to even just build for news customers alone, because uh, while that market is a decent market, you know, it's a good business. It's not necessarily like the big business that we, you know, we want to generate overall. So I think whenever you build a feature, 
feature, you want to make sure a good number of well-paying customers really want to use it um, and need it. Um, another thing is really kind of understanding when you're building tech what the workflow is. And it sounds really simple, but if you really break up somebody's workflow at the very base user level, they are not going to use it or even worse, they're not gonna use it and when their bosses tell them to try it, they're not gonna use it and they're gonna say it's not any good. <laughs> so you, I think that's one important, you know, important part to think about. Wait, say that again, Lindsay. So, 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 so make that point again. So, so if you break up their workflow, say, just say it again, I didn't quite get it. Yeah, yeah so if you, so for instance, you know, if you take somebody's established workflow that they have understood yeah. for years and you yeah. disrupt it too much, ah what will happen is, is they will not like your product because you mm -hmm. just made the learning curve for a job that they were able to do with their hands tied behind their back harder uh, because yeah. they have to learn something. And then they are less likely to like your product, try it, or even give you a good review to their boss who's buying it. And so what you really need when you're building tech is a lot of feedback at that base level to make sure you have buy-in there mm -hmm. and that you're making life easier and that it's easy to understand. And so we do get a lot of comments from our current customers like, oh, that's simple. You want to hear that a lot when you're building yeah. tech. Oh, that's easy. Um, from, you know, the other, you know, I would also say in terms of tech, we always evaluate, do we partner our way to a solution or do we build our way to a solution? Um, and I think that having that mindset that you don't have to start from the ground all the time is really good because there are a lot of really smart people in this world who are your, you know, can be great partners and also fuel customer conversations for you and partnering your way into certain tech is great. And then the other piece of it I would say is do look at the stuff you should build yourself. Um, and, and that's really where Brian is, you know, kind of magical and comes in and is like, no, this is going to be ours. I read about this, you know, yesterday and only one other app is doing anything similar mm -hmm. and we're going to launch something, you know, that is within our platform, um, that makes our customers life more exciting, if not easier. So, so I, I think it's good discipline decide what you can partner for what things you can partner and what you have to build yourself. Let's say you have decided to build it yourself. Um, how, how does, what has been your strategy for actually getting the, 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 the product built? You know, I think it comes down to kind of putting together a good plan and, and working with our engineers to kind of choose the right resources and platforms to build it on. Um, and so, like I said, I don't build, I don't spend, you know, day in, day out yeah. building the products. Um, but I think that, you know, having a really great product manager um, really makes a lot of sense. A lot of people, you know, like, like silly old me can have an idea, but if you don't have somebody who can execute with a team of engineers and has a lot of experience along those lines, it's going to be really hard to, you know, get those things done. And I've even seen like folks who are kind of more tech, technologically savvy, even kind of CTO types struggle with that. And that's why I always kind of go back to like that solid product visionary who then can sit down with engineers and get them to kind of do that work. Um, and yeah. then the next piece of it is, of course, getting customers um, to touch your early product before you build too much um, to get them to try it out. We even now have an internal production unit where we eat our own dog food every single day and we get feedback from our producers before we even put it in the hands of, you know, producers or creative directors, you know, uh, that would be our, our customers. All right. Well, Lindsay, that just about brings us to the end of our time. Uh, Thanks so much for making the time. It's super interesting and super interesting to see how you've navigated these recent challenges. Ah, thank you for having me.
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.